Romans chapter number 12. I'd like to read just the first two verses. The Word of God says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. I thank you for this privileged opportunity. I pray that you'd take your word, uh, Lord, make it alive, make it effectual, make it powerful in our hearts and minds. Lord, we know that it is all those things intrinsically. But, Father, we also know if we don't open our hearts and ears and mind to it, that we can sit here and we can hear a sermon and we can walk away unchanged. And, Father, I, my desire, and I believe your desire for us tonight, is that we walk away changed, having heard a truth from you and applied it in our lives. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I have three simple uh, thoughts tonight and one central thought that I want to drive home. But I've titled the message this evening, The Simple Calling of the Christian Life. There are a lot of things contained in living like a Christian. Let me remind you before we even get into the preaching tonight that the book of Romans is written to saved individuals. Now, that's not to say there is not truth contained in it that can uh, be a help to a lost individual in pointing them to Christ. Man, I'm glad that somebody told me that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I'm glad when I was lost somebody told me whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I praise the Lord for the day that I heard that God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all these are contained in the book of Romans. But the book of Romans is a church epistle and it's written to believers. So I'd remind you before we even get started in the preaching tonight that nothing we're preaching on relates to what God expects out of us in order to be saved. You know what God expects out of a person in order to be saved? They need to acknowledge they're a sinner. They need to turn from dependence on self and they need to turn to Jesus Christ and trust in the finished work of Calvary to save them and ask His forgiveness for salvation. God doesn't require any uh, effort, uh, if we want to describe it that way, any uh, self-righteousness, any uh, sacraments, any uh, ceremonies on our behalf, but simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is all that God expects out of us when it comes to the matter of salvation. But now, once a person is saved, God expects some things out of their life. And He's not dangling you over the fires of hell and saying, if you don't hold out and, and stick in and, and uh, work hard, then I'm going to throw you away. We know that uh, the eternal security of the believer is a Bible doctrine. But what He is saying is that in light of the fact that I by grace have saved you, there are some things they ought, that, that ought to produce in your life and uh, there's a way in which you ought to live in light of that. And so I believe that's why Paul begins by saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So often when we preach the Word of God, or I hope I don't do this, I, I never want to do this, but I mean preachers in general so often rip away the context of the Word of God. Uh, it's a little tough for me to do that, especially over the past few weeks in the book of Romans, because ever since January 1st, we've been teaching through it verse by verse in our Sunday school class. And when you study Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul has turned his attention from the world at large and is dealing with what God's plan is for the Jewish nation. And one of the things that he's teaching and communicating in those chapters is how that God is not done with the Jewish nation, but the times of the Gentiles uh, are certainly coming whenever he writes this. Of course, right now we're living in the times of the Gentiles. 
and how that God has chosen to call out a bride from amongst the Gentiles unto Himself. I'll tell you a little good food for thought. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were two saviors in the Old Testament for the Jewish nation, uh, Joseph and Moses. And both of them, before they ever saved the Jewish nation, took a Gentile bride. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Aren't you glad the Lord is calling out a people amongst the Gentiles under His name? You wouldn't be saved were it not for that. I wouldn't be saved were it not for that. And I'm thankful that He has grafted us. Though we be wild olive branches, He has grafted us into the olive tree. And so it's in light of this great truth that Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What he's saying is this, you could have and should have been lost and on your way to hell. But God in His mercy showed grace to you and has saved you and has changed you. And in light of that truth, which are the mercies of God, you ought to live in a certain way. I'm convinced of this. Uh, whenever we get saved, we get a real good hold on salvation. Amen? But if salvation ever gets a real good hold on us, it's going to change our life. Amen? If it, uh, if it re- really ever we get a good comprehension of what happened when God saved us by His grace, then I believe it will be a radical, life-changing experience. And I think that's what Paul is, is pointing to. And I want you to notice these three basic, simple thoughts tonight. And uh, then we'll say a few words about each of them. Let me say, number one in this passage, there is a calling that takes place. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That is what every born-again believer is called to be. Notice I did not say that's what you're called to do. I said that's what you're called to be. Let me mention to you tonight that there is a sacrifice rendered mentioned here. The Bible says we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And you know, so often we think of what we do for Christ as being what we do. We think of it as an action. We think of it as effort. We think of it as work. Now, I don't want to mince any words tonight. If if you're living for the Lord, then that's going to require some living. Amen? It's going to require some action, some service, some effort on your part. But that's not the mere simplicity of it. It's not just that God has some things He expects us to do. But there is a state of mind, a frame of mind, a condition of spirit that He calls every believer to have. Notice that that word sacrifice there, that's not a verb. He's not saying, I call you to sacrifice. He's saying, I call you to be a sacrifice. In other words, I'm not just asking you to give some things up. I'm not just asking you to do some things. But I'm asking you to frame your mind in such a way that when you consider yourself, you consider yourself like those Old Testament sacrifices that were born with a distinct purpose, that lived with a distinct purpose. Uh, they weren't, uh, listen, they, they weren't milk goats uh, part of the time and then got sacrificed part of the time. They were literally born and raised for the express purpose of being sacrificed. You know that you and I, we draw breath so that it might be surrendered and sacrificed unto the Lord. You live and breathe, you move and have your being so that you might be pleasing unto God. Uh, One of the great mistakes that we make in the Christian life, and and I'll be honest, this is why a lot of us are kind of half in. And I, I, listen, I've said this a hundred times, but I didn't come to fuss at the Wednesday night crowd about faithfulness, amen? Uh, But... The reason that in our lives so often we are half in uh, is because we think of who we are and what we have as being ours and then God having a rightful claim to part of it. 
You see this with giving a lot. People say, well, you know, that part is the Lord's. I got news for you, friend. It's all the Lord's. People do the same thing with their time. They'll say, well, I need to go to church. That's the Lord's day. Well, it is the Lord's day, but I don't know if you've read your Bible. He created all seven of them, amen? And just because we do have a day dedicated to worship and to spending time with God's people, that doesn't mean we can compartmentalize our time away and say, well, you know, part of my time belongs to the Lord, but the rest of it belongs to us. Hey, listen, you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in body and in spirit. The sacrifices rendered is not just an act. It's not just a gift. It's not just a giving, but rather it is a frame of mind where we recognize that all we are and all we have and all we could ever hope to have and be belong to God. We exist to be under the praise of His glory. We draw a breath so that He might receive glory from the way we exist and live and behave. God, if you're saved by God's grace, God owns all of you, not part of you. And so often we view it as though we're somehow just paying tribute to God by serving Him. No, uh, listen, when we give to God, we're just giving but a small portion of what belongs already to Him. I was uh, reading uh, even today in Luke chapter number 20, uh, and I didn't intend on quoting this. You don't even have to go there if you don't want, but you uh, certainly you can check up on me later, amen, if you don't trust me. But Luke chapter number 20, the Lord is, uh, the, the Pharisees, they're starting to chafe under His authority. It's a very interesting interaction that takes place. And I don't have time to unhash all of it. But basically, uh, the, the Lord goes into the temple in chapter 19. He drives out the money changers. And, of course, let me tell you something. You really want to make people mad, you start messing with their wallet. Amen? And that really got the Pharisees fired up, man. They was upset at that. And so they decided in chapter 20 they was going to question him. So they said, by whose authority are you doing what you're doing? And uh, the Lord answered him this way. He said, uh, by what authority did John baptize? What did John's baptism come from? Where was it sourced? And he knew they had no answer for this. You know why? Because they had rejected John, but they were in a predicament. If they said that John was just an earthly human being, the people would stone them because they, uh, they uh, considered John a prophet. But if they said they believed that John's witness was from heaven, the Lord would have said, well, why didn't you heed it? And so you know what they said? They said, well, we can't tell. And the Lord said, that's exactly right. You can't tell because you don't want to tell because you know what the truth of the matter is. And he says, then, by the same token, I don't have to tell you where my authority comes from. What he was driving at was this. They knew what the truth was, but they didn't want to receive it. And so they get upset about that, and they decide they're going to send some people to trip the Lord up. So he's teaching in the temple, and they send some people to him, and they ask him this question. They say, we know you're from God. We know you teach the way of truth. Uh, So should we give tribute unto Caesar? And the Lord, knowing what they were doing, and he even asked him, he said, why tempt me thus? He knew what they were doing. You know God knows what we're going to do before we ever do it. We never pull anything over on God. And he said, "Uh, hand me one of those pennies you've got. They handed it to him and he said, whose face and whose name is on this penny? They said, well, Caesar's is. And he said, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, a lot of people stop there and they say, oh, sure, we should respect human government. And by the way, that is true. We should. But then he says, render to God what's God's. Now, what was he saying? Mankind is made in the image of God. We belong to God. 
We bear the image and superscription of God all over the human body. You can see signs of His divine signature. Our entire body is comprised of trinities. Our our hand is uh, triune. Our body as a whole is triune. Our feet are triune. Our arms are triune. They're all in three segments. Why? Because a triune God created us. We're created in His image. And what He was saying is this. If you bear God's image, then you belong to God. Let me tell you something. A human as a creature bears the image of the Creator. How much more you and I as sons and daughters of God do we bear the image of God? His name is written on our account and on our life. And as such, we belong to Him. We ought to consider ourselves as such. And then I want you to notice that we are called not only to a sacrifice rendered, but to a standard that's required. He says you ought to present your bodies a living sacrifice, but it doesn't stop there. He says it ought to be wholly acceptable unto God. Now, I want to point this out, and there's a lot we could say about it, but I've already over-preached my time. Amen. Uh, I want to say that uh, there is such thing as something being acceptable to God and not acceptable to God. There is a tendency for people to think, well, whatever I want to give God, God's satisfied with that. And then we run to the other extreme and we say, well, preacher, nothing could ever be acceptable in the eyes of God. And that's true. When we're talking about how we stand as far as our justified position before God, no amount of our righteousness could satisfy God's holiness and God's wrath. But remember, we have been placed in Christ Jesus, and we're not being dealt with here as a sinner. We're being dealt with here as a servant. And as such, there are things acceptable unto God and things that are not acceptable unto God. You know why we don't like that? Because every one of us right now in this room, our life is either acceptable to God or it's not acceptable to God. And if we acknowledge that there is such a thing as living an acceptable life before Him, then we have to take an account of our life and ask, am I living acceptably before God? We're commanded to do all things to be acceptable in His sight, John said. And as such, we ought to take record and reckoning of our life. Now, how can we know? Well, I think it's summed up in that first word, uh, holy, acceptable unto God. That word holy, it's not holy with a W, meaning entirely, but it's holy in the sense of moral righteousness. And what it's saying here is uh, that if your life is holy, then it's acceptable to God, and if your life is not holy, then it's not acceptable unto God. We are to follow after holiness without which no man shall see God. Holiness is possible. Now, I'd remind you that inasmuch as we're talking about whether we can stand righteous in and of ourselves before God, that's not possible. But inasmuch as we talk about our conduct being reflective of the truth of the Word of God and living our lives, and we'll say a word about it here in a moment, transformed into His image, we can live a holy life before Him. I could sit here and for hours we could list things that are holy and things that are not holy. But I would venture to say that if you've got the Holy Ghost living in you, you've already got one that can parse out every detail of your life. The greater question is, are you following Him? Because the only way we can become holy is by following the leading of the Holy Spirit. He knows what holiness is, and He can convey it. And I want to exhort you, not necessarily just for me to sit up here and list off things and you to think whether they're present or not in your life, but just simply ask you this. If there's something in your life that's not holy then understand your life's not acceptable before Him right now. And if you don't repent of it and ask God's forgiveness of it, then you're never going to be acceptable in His sight until it's dealt with. And so you need to get that thing dealt with because you can be acceptable. Then I want you to notice that we're called to a service reasonable. Look what it says, which is your reasonable service. 
And again, we could say much about this statement, but I would just remind you of this, that what God is calling you to is reasonable. Now, how do we know that in light of what he used as the basis, as the prologue of this entire discourse? He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Listen, there's nothing that God could ask of us, let alone what God is asking of us, that would be unreasonable relative to what he's given to us. What he's given to us. If someone was to walk up to you and give you a hundred dollar bill and say, I want a dollar of it back, would you consider that person unreasonable for wanting that dollar? If somebody was to walk up to you and say, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars and I just want a penny back, would you consider them unreasonable? None of these illustrations we could give would even come close to touching the reality of the situation in our walk with God. He's given us much more than human money and currency could ever uh, regulate or, or calculate. And he is asking for, from us so far less than what we have expected and required and asked of him. If you ever want to feel ashamed, and there's merit sometimes in feeling shame. If you ever want to feel ashamed, just consider what it is that you don't want to give to God and lay it next to Calvary. Consider all he's done for you. And consider the things in our life that we think are too much to do for Him. There's nothing He could ask that is unreasonable. There's nothing He could demand that is inappropriate. No service we could render Him is ever out of order. All service to God is reasonable. If you ever feel like, well, this is just too much, you've got your eyes off of Calvary. Get your eyes back on Calvary. Remember who you're doing it for, and you'll immediately see that it's a reasonable service. There's a calling here, and that calling is to be a sacrifice. Not just to sacrifice, but to be a sacrifice, to reckon ourselves to be a living sacrifice unto God. But then I want you to notice there is a course that we have to take. Now, here's where people always get hung up. All right, preacher, that all sounds good. I want to reckon myself a living sacrifice. I want to live holy. Man, I want to serve God. I know it's reasonable. How do I do that? I believe that's what he details for us in verse 2. And notice these three thoughts that he gives. He says, be not conformed to this world. Let me say, number one, that there are some external pressures that must be eschewed if we are going to be a living sacrifice. When we talk about conformity, the word conformity, it literally means to mold something into the shape of. And you could almost imagine if you were to take a piece of clay, and you're not taking anything from that clay, you're not adding anything to that clay, but you're merely taking it in your hands and applying pressure until it is an image to your liking. This is the very thing the world's doing to Christians. The world has no capacity to take anything from you. The world has nothing it can give you. But what the world can do is take who you are and what you have and manipulate it and mold it and shape it until it looks like the world. You know, the devil does not have creative ability. We see this all through the Word of God. He can pollute things, he can corrupt things, he can pervert things, but he cannot create things. Uh, we see this mirrored even in the laws of physics that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Only God has the creative power. He is the only one. 
Uh, I'd remind you, I said something about this a while back, but uh, I'd remind you of what the uh, magicians said in Egypt whenever uh, Moses turned the sand into lice. And they said, this is the very finger of God. You know why that is? Because Moses added properties to that sand that did not exist before. He created life, and he did so by the power of God. Only God can create. The devil can only manipulate. And as such, the world has nothing of profit to offer you whatsoever. Oh my, I wish young people could get this before they waste a bunch of years and energy. The world has nothing profitable for you. The world cannot contribute anything to your well-being. It can give you all the material things you could imagine, but that's not what makes a man whole. Only God can. And so there are external pressures. Now, the quicker we acknowledge that, the quicker we'll be better equipped to combat those. As long as we don't consider the world to be an active enemy of the work and will of God in our lives, we will continue to naively be manipulated by the world. Uh, one of the things when I was growing up, and I grew up in a Christian environment, I grew up in a Bible-believing uh, church and school, and... Uh, one of the things that the young people, the students, would always think, you, you know, uh, the, the teachers and, and the you know, preachers, they would warn us against the conspiracy that the world is. Uh, they would warn us against how the world is conspiring in concert to uh, drive us from a close walk with Christ, to ensnare us in sin. And I, I don't think kids have changed any today. I think they think the same thing today that we thought then. We thought, that's kooky. We thought, that's not true. The world's just the world. It's not. I, listen, everybody's not out to get us. But it doesn't take long when you grow up and begin to see the war, way the world operates to acknowledge that there is a conspiracy between the devil, the world, and the flesh to drive us from a close walk with God. It is present. Those external pressures are there trying to pull us away from God and push us away from His presence. And if we're going to be acceptable unto the Lord, we have to acknowledge that. We have to recognize the world has an interest in us not knowing God in a personal, meaningful way. And once we know God, the world has a vested interest in us not walking with God. And that's the reason we live in a world today that is inundated with distractions and, and uh, you know, technology. And listen, I'm not against technology in and of itself, but I think we'd have to be blind and not recognize that we live in a, day to, uh, in, in a time today where peace and quiet and time spent in solitude for God to stir and move and woo the human heart is uh, few and far between. Everywhere you look, there's an opportunity to distract yourself, to anesthetize yourself to what God is trying to do in your life. That's not by accident, friend. The world is getting worse at an exponential rate, and it's not by accident. There is a concerted effort. There are external pressures that must be eschewed. But then notice what he says. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, instead of being conformed, you ought to be transformed. Now, the word transformation is vastly different. It does bespeak a creative act. It bespeaks a change taking place. And that's literally what it means, is for something to be changed in a meaningful, substantive way. And it reminds me of this, that there are external pressures that must be eschewed. 
but there is also an internal power that must be embraced. And that power is not intrinsic in of ourselves. But remember, he's talking to believers here. And if you've been saved by God's grace, then the Spirit of God indwells you internally. And He is desiring to transform and change you both internally and externally to be made like unto the image of God's dear Son. And that is the influence, that is the persuasion that we must embrace. So we don't look outside of us for what should be normal and acceptable, but rather we look inwardly, not in and of ourselves, but to the leading of the Spirit of God. And by the way, the Spirit of God will always speak in concert with the Word of God. They'll never be out of sync. The Spirit of God will never tell you anything contrary to the Word of God and vice versa. And we must look to the leading of the Spirit of God to transform us. In other words, we've got to quit looking outside of us to find what is right and correct. Uh, We as human beings have a bad habit of doing this. We are creatures very much of our environment, and especially a lost individual. Hey, listen, if we got enough people to gather around and say that it makes sense to, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, tattoo a big eight ball onto your forehead, there'd be people run out and do it just because enough people are sitting around saying, you know, that'd be a good idea. Uh, If we decided that it was acceptable for us to, uh, you know, shave our head into a big purple mohawk, and we got enough people to agree to that, there'd be somebody out there that would do it. The reason is because as human beings, we look externally for what's acceptable and what's appropriate. But as Bible believers, we ought to know better than that. As Bible believers, we ought to look to the Word of God, and we ought to look to the Spirit of God to give us what is the standard, the the righteous thing, and the righteous means uh, whereby we ought to live our lives. There is an internal power that must be embraced. And then I want you to notice this. There are eternal provisions that must be employed. He says, transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. That word literally means to renovate. I thought about renovation whenever I uh, saw that word. How many? I, I know there's at least some people know about the word renovation right now. Uh, but uh, no doubt if you've ever been through a renovation project in your house, you know what that is, right? That's taking out the old and putting in the new. If you renovate your bathroom, what are you doing? You're taking out that, that, that you know, like uh, squash yellow bathtub that you've got and the pea green toilet that you've got and the, you know, the, the uh, linoleum. Somebody's going to come up and be mad after service tonight and say, you've been looking in my bathroom, amen. promise you I've not. But take up the linoleum or whatever it is and you put something new in. If you renovate your kitchen, then, uh, you know, you're going in, you're taking out the old cabinets, you're putting in the new cabinets. The renewing of our mind, what does that mean? It means that we need to take out what is old and dead and put in what is new and alive. There has to be a constant exchange going on. Our minds get cluttered with the ways and things of the world. I don't know about you, but I don't live in a bubble. I don't live in a cave. I'm exposed to this world the same as you are, the same as your kids and grandkids are, uh, the same as your spouse is. And as such, we have a constant flow of worldly ideology that is flooding into our mind. It may be greater for some, may be lesser for others. But as long as we live in this world, there is going to be that constant diet that comes into our frame of existence. By the same token, even when we talk about the old man, the inclinations of the flesh, it is very easy to allow the flesh to govern and guide and run our lives. So how do we become more like Christ? We have to take that out. We have to put the new from the Word of God and from the Spirit of God 
into our hearts, minds, and lives. This is a deliberate and distinct act of volition that must take place. We have to decide we don't want what the world has to offer, and we have to embrace and receive what the Word of God has to offer. Preacher, how do we do this? Well, one of the uh, primary fundamental things we have to do is we have to be reading the Word of God. Uh, This is the primary way through which God speaks to His children. Uh, We need to cut down on the things of the world that we allow into our lives, and we need to increase how much of this we've got in our lives. I told you when we started tonight I was going to give you some very practical things. I'm saying you need to spend more time in this book. If you want to be more like Christ, you need to spend more time in this book. Preacher, I don't understand all of it. Well, get in line. None of us understand all of it. But if we'll read it and study it, the author indwells us and lives within us. We have no need that any man teach us, but that self-same anointing teacheth us. And he can't teach you if you're not reading it. I can give you first-hand testimony to this fact, uh, that if a student is not reading the material, he can't learn the material. I learned that in school, amen? If you're not reading it, if you're not uh, absorbing it, then you're not going to learn it. A lot of us, we want to learn the Bible by proximity. Set it on the uh, coffee table and just hope by osmosis the Word of God reaches our hearts and minds. It doesn't work that way. We've got to spend time in it. We've got to study it. You ought to study it both devotionally and systematically. You ought to read it just for God to speak to you, and then you ought to read it so you can learn it. You ought to spend time awash in the Word of God. You ought to spend time in the prayer closet. We need to be talking to God on a regular basis. If we believe in prayer, we'll pray. In fact, our belief in prayer can be directly measured by the amount that we pray. The more we pray, I think at least that's a good indicator that we believe in prayer in a greater way. We need to be spending time in spiritual things. We need to be sitting under preaching. You're doing a good job of that, amen? In fact, we'll make that number one. That way you feel accomplished, all right? We need to be sitting under preaching. We need to be listening to preaching. Uh, We need to be spending time in the house of God. We need to be singing the songs of God. And if we will feed a steady diet of this into our lives, and if we'll choke out the influence of the world, then there'll be a transformation that takes place in our lives. So there's a course that is laid out. And then finally, and I'm just going to say this and and we'll be done. There's a consequence. And that consequence is this. He says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me say to you, number one, what that word prove means. It means to test. It means to find out by experience. What it's saying is this. If you'll follow God and if you'll live for God and if you'll surrender to God, you'll find out some things about the will of God. So often we want our, our knowledge of God to be theoretical. We want to just merely read and study God as though he's some sort of bug under glass. But if we'll walk with him, we'll learn some things. And what are the things that we'll learn? Well, I'd remind you first off, a lot of people take this verse and they say, well, see, there's three wills of God. There's a perfect will, there's an acceptable will, uh, there is a, a good will. I don't see that. The basic laws of English, if I believe my King James Bible, will not allow me to believe that. Because if that's what it meant, it should have said that you may prove what are those good and acceptable and perfect wills of God. That's not what it said. What it said is there is one will of God. And that will of God is altogether good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, you can believe whatever you want about that. But I think just the basic laws of grammar will not allow us to believe there are three separate wills of God. 
So what do we learn when we get in the will of God? We learn three things. One, we learn that God's will is pure. A person that's walking with God will have a pure life. I didn't say they'll live in moral perfection, but they'll have a pure life. A dirty life is not the will of God for anybody. It's not the will of God for anybody. Uh, lust and, uh, and lying and, uh, and greed, none of these things are a part of the will of God for anybody. Now, you might say, preacher, I read in my Bible, God used all kinds of people. Yeah, God uses me and God can use you. That doesn't mean that God was proud of Samson's womanizing. doesn't mean he was pleased with David's murdering. doesn't mean he was uh, gleeful and encouraged by Abraham's lying. What it means is that a, an omnipotent God can use imperfect individuals. We're not talking about what you can get away with without God striking you dead. We're talking about what's acceptable to Him. And what's acceptable to Him is a life of purity. Purity. God's will is pure. It's good. Now let me say number two, God's will is palatable. It's palatable. It is acceptable. It's acceptable to Him. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. You say, preacher, why? Because he already said that we ought to be acceptable unto God. I think what he's saying is that the will of God will be acceptable to you if you'll live in it. Uh, We'll be happier in the will of God than anywhere else. The will of God is always right. It's always best. And once you get in the will of God, you'll love the will of God. We want to stand at a distance and ask for God to detail everything He's going to call us to go through and then us sign off on whether or not we want to go through it. That's not how it works. We walk by faith, not by sight. But if you'll go ahead and walk with God, you won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. I've never, listen, and I've, I've read this book, and you have, and I've talked to Christians my entire life. I've grown up around Christians. I've never met one of them that said, you know, this whole serving God thing is pretty awful. I've never met one of them that said, I was really excited about serving God when I started serving Him. It just really disappointed me. Now, I've, I've talked to lots of people that have said, boy, I wish I'd served God sooner in my life talked to a lot of people that have said, boy, I wish I got saved at a younger age and surrendered my life to Him. And I've heard a lot of people say, I wish I had given Him more and done more. But I've never met a single person say, I, I served God and wound up unhappy. Never once. God's will is palatable. And then finally we see that God's will is perfect. Now again, when we talk about perfection here, we're not talking about moral perfection, although I think that's true. I think what it's saying here, in fact, I know what it is saying, is that God's will is complete and comprehensive. God doesn't leave any loose ends. God doesn't leave anything undone. He makes a perfect work. If we'll follow God, listen, there's people in this room, in fact, I would venture to say probably everybody in this room over about 20 years old has thought to themselves, there's things I want to do before my life is over. Some of you that have a little less road in front of you than behind you, you may even be thinking, before God takes me home or before the Lord returns for His bride, I hope I can get this accomplished. Let me tell you something. If you'll walk with God day by day, you'll find that everything that needs to be done will get done. You won't have any regrets when you get to heaven if you'll walk with God day by day. So there's a calling We are called to be a living sacrifice, not to give a living sacrifice or perform a living sacrifice, but we ourselves to be a living sacrifice. We should consider ourselves whole lock, stock, and barrel owned by God 
and we ought to render ourselves unto Him. There is a course, and that course involves eschewing the pressures that are external, embracing the power that is internal, meaning the Spirit of God that lives within those that have been born again. And then there are some eternal provisions that we ought to employ. We've got to get the, the carnal out. We've got to get the fleshly out. We've got to get the spiritual in. And then finally, if we'll do that, we'll find out that God's will is pure, palatable, and perfect in every way, shape, fashion, and form. It'll be right. You won't be unsatisfied with God if you'll just go for Him wholeheartedly and give your heart and life to Him.